0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We've been talking for several weeks about uh, disordered loves and how the gospel, as much as doing anything else, confronts the way that we love so that ultimately our love can be formed by God's love, or as Jesus says in John chapter 15, so that we can love others as he has loved us. And as it does that, as the gospel forms our love into the image of of God's love, it does a couple of different things. First of all, the gospel confronts our tendency to love the wrong things, and it calls us to love those things or those people that God loves. It, It corrects our love or forms our love in that way. It also confronts the way that we sometimes love things or people too much. And it calls us away from giving those things or those people inappropriate sway over our lives and over the decisions that we make. And then finally, the gospel calls us or the gospel confronts us in the way that we love sometimes too little by calling us to make room in our lives, to give attention to those who maybe aren't always natural objects of our goodwill. People like the poor and the sick and the imprisoned and the foreigner and even our enemies, Jesus calls us to love. And so, Uh, Much of what the gospel is about has to do with reorienting our loves. Jesus' own, this passage that we read this morning about serving, you know, not serving money and God is one of those passages that draws us into that reorientation as well. And as we've been discussing, as we've been discussing that, as we've been talking about the way that Jesus invites us into a different way of loving, we've been giving our attention over the last couple of weeks to the seven capital vices, or what are sometimes referred to as the seven deadly sins and how each of those sins or each of those vices is really just a byproduct of some misplaced love. Sin is a symptom of some disordered love, either loving the wrong thing, or loving something or someone too much, or loving something or someone too little. But this morning as we continue our examination of those seven capital vices which Fred described last week as those sins that become sins of habit or those sins that have a way of dictating the way that we live and and determining the type of people that we become. But as we continue our examination of those seven capital vices this morning, we're going to turn our attention to one that for me is a little bit uncomfortable and it is the, the vice of greed. We're going to be talking about our disordered loves toward material possessions and money. Now, I don't know how you feel when you read the Scriptures, but for me, when I read the Scriptures, there are always certain doctrines that I encounter in the Scriptures that make me a little bit uncomfortable. And this morning, we're going to talk about one of those uncomfortable doctrines. And the reason why I'm uncomfortable when when I consider what the Scriptures say about money, it's not because I consider myself to be any more materialistic than the average Christian or any more materialistic than the average American— um, when I compare myself to other people, which is not something I ought to be doing, right? But when I, when I compare myself to other people, I, I actually feel okay about the way that I, I use my money and my attitude toward money. It's easy to feel good. I can always find somebody who's more materialistic or more greedy than I am. Uh, I'm not any more greedy than the next guy, I suppose. But the reason that I feel uncomfortable when I actually consider what the Scriptures say about money is because when Jesus talks about money and material possessions, he actually says some things that are pretty radical. Um, he calls us into a way of living, and I want you to understand this right from the get-go, because this is what we're going to be talking about all morning. Jesus calls us into a way of living that is far, far different than the way that most of us live. Um, the ideas that we're going to be discussing this morning concerning the attitude that Christ calls us into with respect to money and material possessions, these are foreign ideas. They, they stand in contrast to the way that we most naturally Uh, view money or the way that we most naturally act toward money. As we we look at the words of Jesus this morning, you may think, man, how in the world can I possibly do what Jesus commands in this area of my life? He's so crazy. He's so drastic. How can I view my money and my material possessions from the perspective that he invites me to adopt? You may feel uncomfortable. In fact, I kind of hope you do feel uncomfortable this morning. But rather than being downcast and guilt-ridden as we consider Uh, what Jesus says with respect to money. I want to look at the Scriptures this morning with the hope that regardless of where we are at this very moment, if you and I will make room for God's Spirit to speak to us and form us with respect to the way that we view our money, God can actually change us. Uh, I think sometimes we don't really give God credit for his ability to do that, especially when it comes to our money, because we're so used to living the way that we live. But God can actually change us, and if we allow us to ch- him to change us, he can actually use us in some wonderful and, and unexpected ways. And so I want us to look at the scriptures this morning, not in despair, but in the hope that the king of the universe can actually reorder our loves in those areas where perhaps they've gone horribly awry. We're going to begin by looking at Luke chapter 12, and an encounter that Jesus has with a man in this passage. in Luke chapter 12, um, we're going to see that Jesus is engaged with a discussion in a discussion with a man who's in a dispute with his brother about an inheritance. And as we look at this this uh, discussion or this this man as he comes to Jesus, I want you to pay particular attention at the very beginning of this passage to the attitude of this man who's encountering Jesus, his attitude toward himself and his attitude toward his money. Because the way that this man approaches Jesus. This man's attitude in approaching Jesus is going to have significant bearing on how Jesus responds and the guidelines that Jesus sets concerning the remedy for our greed or the the remedy of of our disordered loves directed toward money and material possessions. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, Luke is writing and he says, someone from the crowd said to him, talking about Jesus, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother, to divide his inheritance with me. Now, again, before we get into uh, Jesus' response and his teaching on our attitude toward money, notice this man's focus in coming to Jesus. He, when Jesus. When this man comes to Jesus, he's totally focused on himself. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my brother essentially to give me some of what he has, I want some of his stuff. His focus on himself, see, has produced in him this lack of contentment, and he's asking Jesus to do something, not to change his attitude toward the thing that he already has. He's not asking Jesus to produce contentment, but he's asking Jesus to to change his situation so that he has more. He's asking Jesus to change his circumstances. Jesus says in verse 14, Friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And so Jesus' initial response is, it's kind of to dismiss the request of this man, and he's going to move on to addressing a more significant issue. But he's essentially saying, why is this argument that you're having between you and you and your brother uh, about this inheritance, why is this any of my business? I'm not here to settle these types of decisions. I'm not here to fulfill your desire for material possessions. I haven't come to make you more wealthy and comfortable. Verse 15, he begins to address a different issue, and he's going to address this for 20-some verses or so, he then told them watch out and be on on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So he basically says, you know, without being direct, he says you're being greedy. And then he tells a story. He told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, "What should I do since I don't have any more anywhere to store my crops?" So he's got this excess. He's not thinking about, "Oh, how can I use this excess to benefit other people?" He's thinking oh, I've got all this excess. What am I going to do? I guess I'm going to have to tear down my barns, right? Okay, Um, I will do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now, I want you to pay attention to those last several words. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. This is what this greedy man that Jesus identifies is saying to himself. Now, without growing into great uh, detail I just want to notice the tone of this story that Jesus begins to to tell. Notice the attitude of this man that Jesus describes in this parable as he's beginning to teach uh, what our attitudes toward our money and our material possessions ought to be. This man, not only the man that has come to Jesus, but this man about whom Jesus tells this story, again, is focusing on himself. He's only thinking about his comfort and his well-being. He's successful, and he's aiming toward... This is where I get uncomfortable. He's aiming toward a life of ease, and he's aiming toward a life of enjoyment. And we might as well be honest, he has just described the American dream. He has just described exactly what probably everyone in this room is really aiming toward in some regard. He's telling us about greed, and he has very accurately described the way that many of us view our wealth and the the goals that we've set for our wealth just ask Jason Blanchard these are the goals that I have for my wealth as well <laughs> right okay so this man who identifies uh, sorry this man who Jesus identifies as greedy is living in such a way that he can get to the end of his life and ultimately take it easy and enjoy himself it's it's a very typical way to live but notice that Jesus is calling us out of what is the normal way of operating Jesus makes it clear very very clear frighteningly frighteningly clear that he isn't concerned with letting us maintain maintain the status quo. He's not concerned with what's normal for the rest of society as far as the, the pursuit of money and material possessions. He's not worried about that. Instead, what Jesus is concerned with is calling us to a different way. What he's concerned with is calling us to reorder the way that we live and the way that we love, not so that we're, you know, Relatively good in comparison to the really greedy people in our society, but so that we actually become like him. And most often, when you read the words of Jesus as he speaks in the gospels, you come to find out that his way stands in direct opposition to what's most comfortable and what's most natural for us. So he describes this guy who's, you know, he's got this excess, he's trying to figure out what to do with it. He's going to take it easy and and so forth. And then verse 20, it says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so Jesus basically says to this man who comes to him looking to establish a better life for himself, Jesus basically says, why in the world are you so concerned about wealth? Why are you allowing this issue of an inheritance to come between you and your brother? The way that you're living does not make any sense because life is simply not about the abundance of your material possessions. Now, we we say that all the time. We read that. If you read the, the New Testament, if you read the Gospels in particular, you come across those teachings of Jesus all the time, that life is not about money. But take a moment to consider how radical this message is in comparison to the way that we actually live our lives. As he tells this parable, Jesus says to this man, someday you're going to die, and when you do, it's simply not going to matter what you've accumulated. Uh, there's an expiration date on the value of these things that you're wearing yourself out to get. There's an expiration date on the value of these things that you're letting to come between you and your brother. There's an expiration date on the value of these things that you're allowing to come between you and your God. And that expiration date may come much sooner than you expect it to come. And so that being the case, Jesus doesn't bother trying to solve this dispute between these two greedy brothers. He doesn't address this man's real concern at all because he knows those things are not at all important. Instead, what Jesus does is to address the attitude and the perspective of this man who's come to him with his complaint. Because in Jesus's mind, that's where the problem lay. It wasn't in the amount of money that he had. It was in his attitude toward money altogether. It wasn't a matter of how much this man needed in order to find contentment. It was a matter of disordered loves. As you might expect, Jesus' words are very similar to some things that Paul says in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. Paul as he's beginning there in verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Man, is that true? <laughs> Paul, like Jesus, reminds us that we're not going to be able to take anything with us when we die. Every material possession that you own, every dollar that you earn, has an expiration date when it will have absolutely no Value. That's how Paul begins that passage that we just read. And then he goes on to identify some of the consequences of pursuing these things. And he talks about what the real problem is and how we address that real problem. He offers a a remedy. He says there in verse 9, but those who want to fall, sorry, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. We didn't read it all. But if we were to go back and look at the early verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'd see that Paul has just finished talking about sound doctrine. We don't often at times equate sound doctrine with instruction about the use of our money, but Paul does. Um, Paul's been talking about sound doctrine and how those who don't follow sound doctrine end up becoming conceited and and getting involved in disputes and arguments with other people. I'm sure we've seen some of that in our lives. He points out that those who don't follow sound doctrine are full of envy and quarreling and slander and that they live in this, this constant state of disagreement with others. And he closes this description of these people who aren't committed to sound teaching by pointing out, last of all, that they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. That's what precedes that passage that we just Read where Paul says, you know, you brought nothing into this world and you can't take it out either. And so Paul's essentially saying, look, there's a school of thought, even among people who claim to be followers of Christ, there's this school of thought which asserts that the, the, the kingdom of Christ will result in material blessing. Now, what precise uh form that teaching took, I don't know. Maybe there were there were preachers who were preaching that you know or who are preaching for the purpose of making a profit off the gospel which certainly we see that happening from time to time in our own day or maybe and i think it's more likely that paul's just referring to some type of teaching that inaccurately linked faithfulness to the way of christ with ultimate material prosperity so if you if you obey christ he's going to bless you and you're you're going to have lots of money, but whatever the precise manifestation of this incorrect doctrine was it's not so far removed from the types of, of teachings that we see being taught in our own time. There are preachers again who who preach as a means to material prosperity. there are those who declare what we sometimes refer to as the, the health and wealth gospel that that faithfulness to the mission of Christ or to faithfulness to Christ leads to material prosperity. but really even if we don't hold to to that type of gospel consciously or proclaim it with our mouths that may be an underlying expectation that we have still. That if we're really faithful to God, He'll make us prosper. I mean, after all, that would be fair, right? But Paul's setting out in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Jesus is setting out in Luke chapter 12 to refute those types of false assumptions. They're both confronting this idea that the end result of following Jesus will be a life of comfort and prosperity. Paul begins again by reminding us that we both enter this world and we leave this world without any material possessions. There's nothing that we bring with us when we're born and there's nothing that we take with us when we die. And so we might as well be content with what we have because it's not all that important and it certainly doesn't last. It's not the stuff of real life. And then he keeps going in verse 10 where he identifies the problem that lies beneath this pursuit of prosperity and ease. And he says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so Paul, we could say, I think goes even a little bit further in his explanation of this whole idea than Jesus even does in Luke chapter 12. Paul identifies the problem, I think, more specifically. He talks about the short-term value of money and the danger that confronts us when we chase after money, but he identifies the problem that we, we plunge ourselves into these dangers. We chase after these things that have no value because we have disordered loves. We're investing our will and our energy and our time and our effort and even our hearts into something that is utterly futile. We're loving the wrong thing. And so he picks up in verses 17 through 19 and offers us a remedy. Verse 17, First Timothy chapter 6, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come, so that they may take hold of life that is real. Now, remember, back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says that one's life or the quality of one's life does not is not determined by the abundance of one's possessions. In other words, from the perspective of the kingdom of God, those who are poor can have just as rich and full a life as those who are rich. In fact, if we were to examine the teachings of Jesus more closely in the book of Luke, uh, where he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount giving us the Beatitudes, we'd see that, according to Jesus' own words, the poor are actually in a position to live a fuller life than those who are rich. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And that's why James encourages the poor to take pride in their high position. He reverses the way that we normally see, see things. Those, are in hum, those who are in humble circumstances materially are at an advantage when it comes to life in the kingdom of God because they're actually better suited to adopt the priorities of the Messiah. They're not as distracted as those of us who are rich. And Paul reinforces that same idea by introducing for us what is a paradox when he says that real life is taken hold of when rather than holding on to our material possessions, we share and we're generous and we use our possessions to administer goodness and grace to others rather than storing up for ourselves. Now, before we go any further, it's important that we slow ourselves down enough to hear this, all that we're talking about here, because there is nothing any more countercultural in the Scriptures than these ideas. These are, if we're honest, I think, for many of us, uh, the most some of the most difficult words in the Scriptures to really trust. That there's better life in giving stuff away than there is in hoarding it. And so, again, slow down and hear this. Let it sink in. Jesus and Paul are both adamantly asserting that the quality of your life has nothing to do with the amount or the quality of your possessions. I'll say it again. The quality of your life has nothing to do with the amount or the quality of your possessions. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't some benefit to material possessions. That doesn't mean that material possessions can't make life enjoyable if they're appropriate, appropriately received. Paul addresses that as well right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in, in verse 17. He said, God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And he says that in the context of talking about money and material possessions. God richly provides these things for you to enjoy. Earlier in the fourth chapter of this same letter, Paul says that all things that God created are good and nothing should be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And so clearly, God isn't asking us to live a life of asceticism. He's not asking us to totally abstain from the accumulation of material possessions or or from enjoying those things. Anything that's received with thanksgiving, anything that's received with appreciation and contentment, with the proper perspective, being understood as a blessing from God rather than becoming an object of our trust itself, any of those things that God has created, Paul says, are good, can be good and pleasing. I just finished reading a book about Gandhi. And uh, Gandhi, among other things, was an ascetic. Uh, He believed in abstaining from many of the material comforts that you and I would consider to be just the most basic necessities. For example, when he would move around India and stay in different homes and hotels. Um, this is a, a, a normal picture of the way that he lived, by the way. He would he would move around India. He was staying in, in homes and hotels as he was leading this non resistance against the British Empire. And the first thing that he would do whenever he entered one of those dwellings was to have somebody take out almost all of the furniture that was a part of that dwelling. He'd only have a little spindle there and a, and a bed and maybe a little table. Um, but he thought he thought that what we would consider to be even the most basic of human possessions, like a chair or you know, um, just, just stuff you have laying around your house, a table, a kitchen table, he thought that even those most basic things were unnecessary and even evil to some degree. They, they produced uh, needs in us that shouldn't have been there. And that belief was a byproduct of his faith as a Hindu. Uh, part of the philosophy of authentic Hinduism, as I understand it, Is that a person ought to ultimately strive to get to the point in his life where they are without desire with respect to carnal pleasures. Being devoid of any carnal desire is the ultimate height of spirituality in Hinduism. And sometimes we've taken, we've kind of adopted some of those attitudes ourselves. Like if we don't, we're close to God if we get rid of all pleasure and all desire. By the way, Gandhi believed this so much that he lived the last 50 years or so of his married life in celibacy. Um, His, his desire and his ultimate goal was to achieve desirelessness. But that's not, and this might surprise us, I don't know, that's not what God is calling us to in the Scriptures. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul outright uh, rejects asceticism done only for its own purpose as a teaching of demons. That's how strongly he felt about this not being what Christ is calling us to in the gospel. In many ways, this can become a source of pride. In fact, there's an indication, even in the life of Gandhi, although he was a revolutionary and he did many things to defend some of the world's poorest and most marginalized people, there's an indication in his language that Gandhi's asceticism, his his ability to develop this extreme sort of discipline. discipline became a source of great pride to him. God doesn't call us into that lifestyle in part, I think, for that very reason, that it produces pride. Look at the Pharisees. They were good at obeying the law and they got proud. They didn't get closer to God. And so instead, Paul points out that God's provided certain gifts for us, including material possessions, just for the simple fact that he wants to give us pleasure. Now, we don't often think of God in those terms, do we? And I, I don't know why. We don't think of God as a God who wants to give us pleasure. But every end of this every indication of the scriptures is that just as we get pleasure from giving to and blessing the ones that we love, God gets pleasure from giving to and blessing us, provided that what He gives us we receive with thanksgiving, and provided that we don't treat our blessings as the object of our trust. Remember when Jesus was teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter seven, he said, if you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God, since God is good? And the idea is God likes to give stuff to his kids. He likes to bless his kids. Despite the way that it's sometimes interpreted, the scriptures then are not teaching us Self-denial just for the sake of self-denial. Now, now, the idea of self-denial is definitely in the scriptures, so don't, please don't misunderstand me. But instead, what the scriptures are teaching, rather than just self-denial for its own sake, the scriptures are calling us into a change of perspective with regard to our material possessions and money. It's a more difficult way to live in some regard than simple asceticism because it requires navigating the tension between genuinely enjoying the blessings that God has given us with thanksgiving, but at the same time learning not to place our trust in those things. That's a more difficult way to live than just to say, eh, I'm not going to look at those things. God's saying enjoy these things with thanksgiving, but do not trust them. And as Jesus continues to teach, he's going to say, ensure that you do not trust them by giving them away. Verse 22. It seems like Jesus is, of Luke chapter 12, by the way. It seems like Jesus is shifting topics here, but this is all part of one one discussion. He says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn. They don't accumulate their excess, in other words. Yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add a cubit to his height by worrying? If then you're not able to even do a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned with one, like one of these. If that's how God closed the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, O oh, you of little faith? All right, and step on your toes. All right, verse 29. Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious, for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your father, and I think that word, that use of father, must have been intentional. Jesus doesn't say your master. He doesn't say your Lord. He says your father in the context of talking about God taking care of us and providing for us and giving good gifts to us because I think he wants us to understand, listen, you're serving a God who's not just a slave master. You're serving a God who is your father, and fathers provide, right? Your father knows what they need. James, in James chapter 1, I think it is, says that uh, he about, he's talking about the Father of lights. And he says he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Jesus says, if you want to overcome your desire for material possessions, if you want to overcome your trust in material possessions, you start relating to God as your Father. Now We don't have time to handle everything that Jesus says in that passage. I do think it's important, though, for us to notice that very closely connected to Jesus' warning against greed is Jesus' warning against worry. Uh, His instruction on both of these things flow out of that same conversation. Sometimes we're like, I'm not greedy, I don't have anything. And Jesus is like, well, not really. You can still have the same problem. I think Jesus is saying by linking these two things that they both flow from the same improper focus. They both flow from the same disordered love. Both greed and worry flow from this tendency that we have to be preoccupied with the things that aren't the real stuff of life. They both flow from this tendency to put our trust and our hope in the material rather than trusting our benevolent Father. But in reality, and this is where it really hurts, Jesus indicates that this preoccupation with material possessions, this this preoccupation with ourselves and our prosperity and our security, this preoccupation is a hallmark of who Jesus in this passage calls The Gentiles, in Matthew chapter 6, where we have a parallel to this passage, Jesus says, and this will be more meaningful, he says this is a hallmark of idolaters. Jesus is saying that whether it results in the accumulation of material wealth or whether it results in worry, any love that is misdirected toward money and material possessions is an indication that you are serving someone other than your king. And Paul says it straight out in Colossians 3.5 when he says, greed is idolatry. We don't frequently think of ourselves as idolaters. Usually when we think of idolaters, at least for me, I think of some you know people bowing down to statues or burning incense, things that were much more common in the days of the Old and New Testament than they are in 21st century America. But Paul reminds us that if we're placing our trust or finding our security in a certain salary figure or a particular size house or a pension plan, if we think that we'll be satisfied whenever we reach whatever financial goal it is that we've set for ourselves, if that's where our real sense of security lies, that is every bit as idolatrous according to both Jesus and Paul as sacrificing our children (laughs) or committing indecent sexual acts in worship of false gods. We don't like to say that, but that's what the Bible says. Greed and worry, our willingness to trust money, our willingness to seek security and wealth is worshiping an idol. It is serving a false lord. And so after giving us instruction and stepping on our toes a bit, Jesus concludes in a different way than we might ordinarily include a sermon on money. Notice that Jesus does not give us hard and fast percentages for giving. That would be easier and that would be more to our liking. But I think Jesus must have thought, if I just give them a command, I'm not really, they're not really serving me. So if I just give them a command, they'll just idolize the command. And so before Jesus gives them any command, He corrects their false worship. He doesn't give them set amounts based on their income. He doesn't tell them to go and live a life of an ascetic and abandoned possessions altogether, that would have been more, measly, more easily managed than, than living in the tension between enjoying the blessings that God had shared and learning at the same time not to trust those things for security and wealth. But rather than just hopping to some strict guideline and saying, give 10% or give 20% or give 50% or whatever, Jesus identifies the heart of the problem. The problem is worry. The problem is storing up for ourselves and thinking that real life consists in the abundance of our possessions. The problem is where we get our meaning. The problem is seeking security, not in our Father, but in the material. The problem is idolatry. Jesus says it straight out. This is is what the problem is. You're idolatrous. And then he offers a remedy. And I want you to pay attention. This, This verse that Jesus, or these words that Jesus next speak we hardly ever consider them in the context of material possessions and wealth but these are the context in which this is the context in which they are spoken okay he's just been talking about people's idolatry their worship of security their worship of of material possessions and then he says but seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you and so with regard to the way that you view and use your money jesus says what you need to do more than anything else it's to decide very simply that you're going to live like a citizen of the kingdom of God. You need to reorder your love. You need to flee from your idols and you need to pursue your king. We'll talk about commands later. But co- first of all, correct your worship. Your worship's in the wrong place. It's not about percentages or amounts. It's about observing your king and living under his authority. It's about adjusting your life to his priorities rather than expecting him to just adjust his rule to your priorities, which is essentially what that man was expecting Jesus to do when he came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, I know that you, you might be the Messiah. Can you, can you get my brother to share his inheritance with me? It's about using your possessions to pursue the values of his kingdom rather than using your possessions like the idolaters do to secure power or to take it easy or to create security for yourself. He says, seek the kingdom. And then he says, oh, by the way, God will take care of your needs. It's not as if he's going to abandon you. He's your father. He doesn't even abandon the birds of the air, and you are much more valuable than they are. Verse thirty-one. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you not material possessions. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an and inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes in. Sorry, where no thief comes near, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We talk about the kingdom of God versus the reign of sin and death frequently. Uh, But what Jesus indicates here is that our citizenship in God's kingdom, far from just being a part of our theology or or some theory to be cognitively explored and discussed, our citizenship in the kingdom of God has incredibly practical day-to-day ramifications. Our citizenship within the kingdom of God, Jesus says, dictates certainly how we use the money that we have. But even beyond that, Jesus says that our citizenship in the kingdom of God ought to dictate even the way that we, even our view toward money, whether we have it or not, whether we possess it or not. A couple of weeks ago, Fred talked about hope and how hope forms the basis for the reordering of of our loves, but Jesus is essentially saying here that that loving money, craving money, pursuing material possessions, this is the way that people live when they have no real hope. They're setting their hope down here because they don't have any higher hope. This is the way that people live where they've been fooled into believing that this material world is all that there is. This is the way of the reign of sin and death. It is utterly futile. And I don't know if you noticed, but earlier back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul said that the end result of this type of living is ruin and destruction. But the gospel introduces a different way. The gospel proclaims that at the coming of Jesus through his death and resurrection, Another kingdom has broken in. It's, it's a kingdom that is characterized not by ruin and destruction, but by life and peace. It's a kingdom that Jesus tells us to pursue, and the one whose establishment on earth he instructs us to pray for. And without going into great detail, we know from what we're told in Isaiah chapter 9, as just one example, that this king and his kingdom, his kingdom are dedicated to the pursuit of shalom. We sometimes translate that word as peace, but the word shalom actually can It can mean peace, but it can also mean wholeness. It can mean restoration. It can mean human flourishing. That's God's design in the establishment of his kingdom. It's all about the restoration of the way that he originally intended creation to be from the beginning. But it's important that we recognize that Jesus addresses our disordered love of money as he he addresses our greed and the resulting worry. He says, don't be like the idolaters. Don't be like those who don't know God. Don't be like those who live as if this world is all there is. Don't be like those who focus only on that which is visible in front of them, those who have no hope. No, instead, if you want to remedy your greed and your worry, if you want to reorder your love with respect to material possessions and money, seek the kingdom Pursue your king. With respect to money and material possessions, in other words, focus not on how you can use those things for your own advancement. That results in ruin and destruction, but rather focus on how you can use those things for the establishment of shalom, for the pursuit of restoration and wholeness and human flourishing in the name of the King of Kings. Seek the kingdom, he says. Focus your attention on the pursuit of the wellness of others. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. A lot of times when we think of, of, of giving to the poor, we think that our gifts to the poor are done for their benefit, right? And, and I guess there's some truth to that. But notice that in the context of talking about idolatry and greed and worry, Jesus indicates that our giving to the poor is not for their benefit but for ours because the giving of our possessions is the way that we open our hands and our hearts to receive the kingdom that Jesus said God delights in to give us. He's saying, don't grasp on to material possessions. Open your hands so God can give you the kingdom. Jesus indicates that this is the way that we align our hearts with the heart of God. This is the way that we seek the kingdom. This is the way that we give life to our previously disordered looks. Jesus says, concern yourself with the things that concern your king by selling your possessions and giving to the poor. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if your treasure is focused on you, if you're focused on building bigger storehouses for yourself, that's an indication that your heart is dominated by the dominion of darkness. You don't have to worship the devil. You just have to worship money. And it doesn't really matter what you say you believe because your life is a proclamation that you really haven't received the kingdom because you haven't trusted the king. You can't keep a tight grasp on your material security, and at the same time open your hands to receive the kingdom that God delights to give you. But on the other hand, if if your treasure is invested in the poor, if your treasure is invested in the pursuit of restoration and wholeness in the lives of the broken and the needy, there's an indication that you have actually opened your hands and your heart to receive the kingdom that the Father delights to give you. Jesus is saying give to the poor as a way of reorienting your love after the pattern of the kingdom. This is not about legalistic uh, requirements or commands regarding percentages. It's not about that. This is the reordering of the way that we view our entire lives. This is about living in a way that's concerned with the priorities of an entirely different kingdom. At the table, we're tangibly reminded of the priorities of our king. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul was writing to the Corinthians in part to get them to take up a collection for their suffering brothers and sisters in the church at Jerusalem. And he presents them with the need of those who were experiencing hardship, They were living in the midst of brokenness, and he presents the Corinthians with the need of their broken brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. As he does that, he solicits their generosity, not because they owed a percentage of their income. Paul not once in that passage says, you need to tithe. He solicits their generosity not because they were mandated to do so. In fact, Paul says that nobody should give reluctantly or under compulsion. We should only give what we are able to decide in our hearts to give. And so Paul does not try to compel us anywhere in the New Testament with a command. Instead, what he does is to solicit their generosity because there were people simply who were in need of their mercy. There were people who were alive who were in need of their restoration. There were people who were made in the image of their king who needed the administration of justice because they were being mistreated as a result of their faith in Jesus. He solicits their generosity because that's what people of the king do. Children of the giver of all good gifts give. And so Paul, as he writes, says, but since you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but... He doesn't let him off the hook that easy. <laughs> I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He says, I'm not commanding you, and I'm really not, but I want to test the, sincerity, the ser- sincerity of your love by comparing it with the giving of others. I'm not commanding you, but this is an absolute indication of your commitment to the priorities of the kingdom of God. I'm not commanding you, but I am testing you to see where your loyalties and your allegiances really lie. This is not an issue of the law. That's why I'm not commanding you. This is an issue of your heart. And so tell me, he says, where is your heart? And he says, I can tell where your heart is by where you're spending your money. And then he says, by the way, don't forget about Jesus. He, he invites us, in other words, when our hearts are reluctant to give, to compare the love and giving of our Lord, who actually gave not on behalf of others alone, but on our behalf as well. He goes on in verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. Yee, that's uncomfortable. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Now let's say this plainly. This is not socialism. This is the Bible. This is Paul saying that this is the way of our king. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And so Paul says, we don't like to think in these terms as Americans, Paul says it is possible to have too much because he says the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul says, look, I'm not asking you to impoverish yourself so that others might prosper. I'm not asking you to 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 give to the point of destitution. I'm not asking you to deny yourself every pleasure that comes from material possessions. Instead, what I'm asking you to give or to do is to give out of your excess, not to build storehouses, so that there can be equality. This stands in stark contrast to the man who came to Jesus. But more importantly, this stands in stark contrast what we've been taught regarding the use of our wealth and our excess in our own context. If you don't think so, try having a discussion about economic equality after service. Or even better than that, try being generous. And if you haven't developed that practice, I promise you it will produce a tension in you. And you'll start thinking, ugh, it's hard to give away my excess. Well, Paul introduces here again, he's, he's introducing it not as a mandate, but as a voluntary act of cheerfulness that's compelled by love and giving, the love and giving of our king in particular. And that's an important distinction. It's, it's not a command, it's it's a plea. But what he introduces here does not coincide with the value of the earthly kingdom of which we are a member. But as if to silence all arguments, as if to silence the internal part of us that says, "Eh." in the midst of speaking of this type of radical generosity, Paul says, look, I'm not asking you to impoverish yourself, but even if I was, isn't that exactly what Jesus, your king, did for you? Though he was rich, didn't he become poor for your sake? so that you through his poverty might become rich? Hasn't Jesus already given immeasurably more than you'll ever be able to give? He encourages us to give generously, and then he calls our attention to Jesus. Friends, the table is a reminder that our Lord is a giver. John, in maybe the most familiar passage in all the New Testament, said, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus says, seek the kingdom. But when we seek the kingdom, this is what we find. At the center of the kingdom is a king who gives. At the center of the kingdom is a king who calls us out of our greed, out of our reliance on material wealth and money, out of our worry about food and clothing and shelter, out of our love of comfort. First of all, to trust in him, and then to demonstrate our trust by the pursuit of his way, which is the way of generosity, the way of self-giving love. Jesus says, look at me. And go and be generous. And so come and be reminded this morning as you come to the table of the overwhelming generosity of your King on your behalf. Come and reorder your love. Come and seek His kingdom.